morning, dear friends. Now we are going to start our weekly program, Psychological Mornings. We are Veronica Cabrera, Maria Martin, and me, Clara Campos. Hello. Hi, everyone. But we have bad news. This is our last program. It's a pity. But we have to say that we have learned many things during all these weeks, so we can be proud. Yes, it's true. And today we have three main interesting topics for our listeners. These are prejudice and group conflicts, group techniques and mediation at the school. You can miss it, so we are going to start with the first one. Do you know what a prejudice is? Well, I think it is when you say something about someone without knowing him or her. Yes, that's it. A prejudice is an attitude or orientation towards a group or its members that devalues it directly or indirectly, often to benefit of the self or own group. Furthermore, when we pre prejudice someone, we do it in a bad way, and due to this, racism, agents, uh, etc. appear. Something that we should have in our mind is a clear difference between prejudice and stereotypes. Stereotypes are used as a negative concept instead of a sin... No, no. <laughs> Stereotypes are used as a negative concept instead of a simple idea of an object or person, and a prejudice is not a simple idea, if not about opinion of a characteristic of a group of their members individually. So, well, where does prejudice come from? The response to this question has been focused on threat. This means that our, se our self-esteem is going to be in danger due to other group interests. At that point, we have also to give some importance to the perceptions. Cases such as detecting by perception the threat to your self-esteem and group interests, competition for scarce resources, and how we categorize ourselves as a member of a group and other as members of a different group. So, in some way, prejudging a group gives us and to our group a sensation of superiority. Yes, and I think this is something really bad. I agree with you. Well, there are many theories related to prejudice, but we are going to talk about frustration aggression, authoritarian personality, authoritarianism, and desire for social dominance. Do you know something about the first one? Yes, I know that the frustration-aggression theory was developed by Dollar around, around 1939, after the growth of the antisemitism in Europe, more exactly in Germany. Right, the principal idea was that all frustration ends in, in an aggression, and at the same time, the aggression comes from a frustration. This theory was based mainly in the fact that exists a fixed quantity of energy used by the mind in order to realize a psychological activity. When this activity is achieved, the energy is removed and it returns to the balance. And what happens when the activity is not achieved as it was expected? Well, at this point, aggression appears. The energy is not removed, the balance is not obtained, so the only way of getting a, any change is with the aggression. We have to say that the aggression always has an objective which is the responsible for the frustration. The objective can be of different types, formless, undeterminate, too powerful, unapproachable, or someone you love. When you are not able to pay your frustration with the main objective, automatically you pay it with another person or with an anim inanimate object. These people or objects receive the name of escape goat.
I think it's something that has happened to us in many occasions. We tend to pay our bad days with people that is not their fault. It's true. The shift was one of the most important points of view of the intergroup aggression in relation to the scapegoat. And Miller indicated that the shift through the specialization could be able to change the aggression objective. The scapegoat could change, and thanks to the specialization, the objective could be more focused on an object more similar to the main one. Well, the next theory is authoritarian personality. We can define this as a syndrome of personality originated in the childhood that influenced the members to be prejudiced. <coughs> it was created by Adorno, Dollar, Frankel, Bruns Frankel, Brunswick, Levinson and, and Sanford in 1950s. And in what is this theory based on? According to Dollar and Colts, anybody can be prejudiced. This depends on the aggression movement incited by the frustration. On the other hand, Adorno and Colts believe that only the people with prejudiced personality can be prejudiced. They hold that those kids whose parents have adopted hard practices to secure the emotional dependence develop an ambiguity in which they love and hate them. The main characteristics of this theory are Respect for the authority, obsession with the status, with the status, sorry, tendency to move the anger to the minority and intolerance for the ambiguity. The third theory is authoritarianism. It was created by Alter Meyer, who defined it as a set of three attitudes with three components. Do you know what are these components? Sure. They are conventionalism, authoritarian aggression, and authoritarian submission. Okay, this is good, but it does not work only naming them. You didn't let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Well, as I was saying, conventionalism adherence to societal conventions that are endorsed by established authorities, authoritarian aggressions, support for aggression towards social deviants, and authoritarian submission is the submission to society's established authorities. So good, Clara. Well, girls, the last theory is social dominance theory. It was created by Sidanius and Prato. It's, um, it is the theory which attributes the prejudice to, accept, to acceptance by an individual of an ideology that legitimizes the hierarchy and the useful domain of a group and rejects the egalitarian ideology, ideologies. It is clear? Of course. Well, leaving aside these theories, we have to say that prejudice has three components. Cognitive, that is to say beliefs about the attitude object. Affective, referred to strong feelings, usually negative. And cognitive, intentions to behave in certain ways towards the object of attitude. And now we are going to talk about something really interesting about this topic. As you may be now, there are three different types of prejudice. We can talk about racism, sexism, aims, discrimination against homosexuals, and discrimination based on physical or mental handicap. The discrimination based on race or ethnicity is historically, historically responsible for some of the most atrocious acts of humanity in mass. Historically, white people have a negative stereotype about black people of North America and reflects the general perception about blue-collar rural workers enslaved. One strategy to avoid a charge of being prejudiced is to deny it. Theon Van Dyck notes how people often use disclaimers such as I'm not racist but and I'm not sexist but 
This overt expression of a cultural tolerance inoculates against the prejudice remark which follows it. In addition, certain personal differences are attribu attributable and we create prejudice just for not having the same culture. Sexism is a prejudice against people and discrimination of this depending on the gender. Almost of the research on sexism focus on prejudice and discrimination against women. And this is because historically women suffer most as victi victims of sexism from its lowest position of power in relation to men in business, government and employment. But also women are equally as cap capable of discrimination against men. Related to ageism, Susan Mitchell identifies four distinct generational stereotypes that may be partly attributable to real changes in behavior due to aging. The first one are traditionalists, the ones who were born between 1925 and 1945. They are practical, patient, loyal, and hardworking, respectful of authority and rule followers. The second one are baby boomers, the ones who were born between 1946 and 1960. They are optimistic, value teamwork and cooperation, and ambitious are, are Can you help me with the last two, please? Of course. The next one is Generation X, the ones who were born between 1961 and 1980. They are skeptical. And the last ones, <coughs> Millennials, the ones who were born between 1981 and 1999. They are hopeful, they value meaningful working, diversity, change, and are technologically well-informed. On the other side, discrimination against homosexuals is something that has been present since two millennia ago. It has been considered as a mental disorder, and unfortunately, nowadays people continue having this point of view. Since the late 1960s, there has been a progressive liberation of attitudes toward homosexuals, till the AIDS epidemic appeared. But right now, homosexuals have been recognized and they can even get, get married. Prejudice and discrimination against the physically handicapped has a long past, in which such people have been considered repugnant and subhuman. This discrimination against people on the form of physical handicap is now illegal and socially unacceptable in most Western societies. Prejudice is something inevitable, but there exist certain techniques to counterattack the prejudice. For example, pointing out the cost, the cost of prejudice, undermining the justification subscribed to for prejudice, or direct contact from different groups. Yes, it's something inevitable. I think all of us have made prejudice of someone else without knowing the person. The most typical example is when you meet someone and you start thinking how this person could be, so you are making prejudice. It is true, Vero, but the ad that making prejudice is inevitable is not a reason to make them. Anyway, something that maybe you didn't know is that there are three, three ways sorry, of discriminating. They are resignation, tokenism, and reverse or positive discrimination. Do you know something about them, girls? Well, resignation to help other groups to improve their position in the society is a form of ensuring that it's kept in disadvantage. This strategy can be used by individuals or organizations. The tokens 
is the practice, practice sorry, of making publicly small concessions to a minority group to deflect accusation of prejudice and discrimination, and the reverse of positive discrimination is a more extreme form of tokens. It is the practice of publicly being judgmental in favor of a, a minority to deflect the accusation of prejudice and discrimination against a group. The effects of prejudice on the victims are diverse. In general, prejudice <coughs> is harmful because it stigmatizes groups and the people who belong to those groups. The perceived discrimination has a significant, significant negative effect on, ment on mental and physical health. But what are the stigmas? They are group attributes that mediate a negative social evaluation of persons who belong to the group. We can distinguish between visible stigma, such as race or gender. It means that people cannot easily avoid being prejudiced. Con uh, concealable stigmas, such as homosexuality, ideologies or religious, uh, religious affiliations. It allows people to avoid the experience of prejudice. Control stigmas, for example, obesity, smoking, and homosexuality, are thought to be controllable. People are responsible for having those things. And finally, uncontrollable stigmas have little choice in processing such as uh, race, sex, and some illnesses. After talking about this topic, we can give out, uh, we can give you a good advice. Don't judge people without knowing them, because maybe you are wrong about this person. Sometimes the person is very different to you, is the person you like the most. The most. Yes, it's true. I know it from my experience. And also in the formation of prejudice, intervenes the physical, physical appearance, which is the first thing we see from a person. Good said, Maria. Uh, well, the second part of this topic is the group conflict. A conflict can be defined as a struggle that involves Opposite involves opposing ideas, values, or limited resources. Morton deaths indicated that a conflict appears when two actions are incompatible between them. The first prevents and makes the second less probable. The intensity of the conflict may depend, depend on several aspects. The more important is the goal, the greater the intensity of the conflict will be. We can find the conflict of reconciliation-reconciliation. In this case, the two proposed ideas are more important, and we don't know which, which one we have to choose. We also have the conflict of reconciliation avoidance. The decision that has been taken has good part as bad. Knowing the main source of the conflict can help us to analyze better the strategies we must take. The sources can be ideas and values, status or power and goals. Yes, each, each person has their own personal ideas, either in religious or moral issues, and for this, sometimes values and ideas can be a cause of conflict. <coughs> the status is the position of a member in a group hierarchy. In the consensus, status decides the position intended to occupy each one. If the agreement fails, there will be tension and conflict. Power is the perceived influence that a person has about the other. At this point comes the conflict. Sometimes a person might be at odds with the position of power that other is using. And finally, goals conflicts are based on the objective of each worker without having the necessity of being revealed. Well, in conflicts, we can find terms such as the conflict resolution and the conflict management. Do you know what are them? 
To explain conflict resolution, I'll put an example. Imagine Phil and John are components from the same company and have the same position of power. Each one has different ideas and the positions opposition sorry appear. They know that that ultimately they will they will have to reach a consensus to issue a document. Although there is a, ch a chance that may not solve it, they should find the best solution. It's clear. Yes, it is. And the conflict management refers to the speed in which the conflict is resolved. From here, we can highlight the two types of conflicts, functional and dis dysfunctional. When a conflict is functional, it is handled with a skill. Members value each other. It is value the work of the group. It looks for it looks for and evaluates information, and there is always an incentive to work differences. On the contrary, when a conflict is dysfunctional, it is handled poorly. poorly. Members are not valued between them. The goals are focused on the individual, and it has an, an attitude of all or nothing. Within these types of, of conflicts, we can differentiate between the different effects that can produce. There are three important ones. The substantive conflict related to the ideas or themes, the conflict of ideas, which is a disagreement on the thinking and concepts, and the affective conflict related to emotional and interpersonal relations. We have to say that a group can use various strategies to manage and resolve uh, the conflict. According to Burke, we can use five strategies. Force, using the power to get acceptance, remove for, from the conflict, soften, that is to say, minimize conflicts, avoid the issue and pretend that it's not important, grant, that is to say, each part gives a little of what they want, no one wins everything, everybody loses something, and finally, problem solution, direct energy to solve the problem, try to reach an optimal solution, a collaborative effort. In conclusion, with this topic we have learned that prejudice is something really bad, and we should try to avoid it. Also, we have learned how to treat group conflicts and the best ways to solve them. So we hope all of you know how to act when you are in the middle of a conflict. Girls, now we are going to start with the second topic of today's program, group techniques. Uh, do you like this topic? Yes, I really like it, Vero. Me too. I think it's one of the most useful topics of those programs. What do you think a group is? Mm, it's when two or more individuals define themselves as members of a team. Yes, when they have common objectives, goals, hobbies, those things. Well said, girls. So now we should start with the history of group techniques. In the past, there weren't group techniques related to education because it was very traditional and, is, and it was not focused on the personal development of students. But now we have changed it. We have created those techniques in order to improve the efficacy and to get the student engaged. And also through experience, we have noticed what is better for each group. Obviously, because experience is the best teacher. But apart from the history, there are some authors that should be mentioned on this topic. Don't you think so? Yes, of course. First of all, we should mention Spada, because he developed the definition of group techniques. Do you know what he said? Yes, he said that they are structured activities which are used as a way to make education experience easier regarding groups. They are not a purpose, but a way to reach common goals. Also, those groups' techniques help us teachers to maintain communication alive with the students. Good job. Now we continue with the concept of cooperative learning. Have you ever heard about it? 
Yes, I think I have studied on our degree. It's a strategy for producing learning gains, the development of prosocial behavior, interracial acceptance, and as a way to manage academic heterogeneity in classrooms with a wide range of achievement in basic skills. I remember, yes, we have talked about this topic in another program. Yes, it's true. Well, it is also useful the cooperation as a way to manage academic heterogeneity in our classrooms. But at first, there were many studies in which cooperative learning was associated with results that were almost as good as those with more traditional methods. That is why Davidson, in 1985, discovered that there were significant differences according to maths, favoring cooperative learning processes instead of traditional methods. Also, Newman and Thompson, doing a research in 1987, discovered that 68% of the 37 comparisons they made favored cooperative learning over traditional forms of instruction. And to conclude with the section, we must mention Widamar and Keegan and Slavin. So, as you may see, cooperative learning is more effective rather than traditional methods. Those techniques consist on students working together in small groups in which they can express their opinion freely. But be careful, because one technique that may be effective for one variable can be ineffective for others. But girls, how can teachers make students cooperate with each other to develop those techniques? It's important to give students some feedback and make them think on how the group is behaving. The behavior required for cooperative small groups is totally different from the behavior required in conventional classroom settings. That is why sometimes it's difficult for students. But children get used to those things faster than what we think. Now that we know what is required in a classroom to develop those techniques and we know that what cooperative learning is, how can we put in, into practice this? It's really simple, yes. First of all, we as future teachers should try different techniques because we do not know uh, the effects of each one in our class. That is to say, an evaluation. We also need to have an active role and teach children some norms or rules. And finally, we need to keep trying if something fails. But girls, the teachers have an important role during those processes that I think it may be mentioned. As they are working in groups, teachers cannot be everywhere explaining students what to do. This is why when teachers need to say something in general, the work stops in order to listen to the teacher. The same as students, as students teachers need to be adapted to the new situation. Before, they had a lot of students working on the same task, but now mm, they are working on different tasks. And also, each group has its own rhythm, girls. It sounds really great, but our listeners maybe are wondering what we want to get from these techniques, no? Yes, it's important too. These methods also give us some values, better relationships with our classmates, let us know better our students, but also improve the social climate inside the classroom, productivity of the learning processes, and help students to integrate themselves in the class. It is very important for the students and also teachers, but how can we obtain those goals? For example, if a child comes uh, from a different country, those methods help him to talk with his classmates, classmates and know them better. Also, these help students to be more respectful with other people. Oh yes, I see. And also students get involved in the same task as, as their classmates and they start to be able to organize themselves. 
In my opinion, those techniques give, a, give great opportunities to our society in general. I totally agree with you, Clara. And it is an excellent topic to work on. Yes, I think the same. But girls, time runs, and as you know, it's the last program. So it's important to say everything we have pre prepared for today. Okay, okay, Vero. It's true, listeners. So we keep on going with the advantages and disadvantages. Despite the fact that we have said a lot of them before. But, for example, we have not... We haven't mentioned that this technique gives us the perfect opportunity of converting conflicts into positive energy. How great is that? Moreover, it, it gives the opportunity to some students that, for example, are shy, to express their opinion in a friendly way. But the biggest question you may have is, how can we choose the perfect group technique? Firstly, we have to have our objective clear to choose the perfect one. Then, if we develop those techniques correctly, we can obtain aspects from personal and group progress such as Motivation. Rewards, for example, help students to feel better when they do things well. Ability to express ourselves. All of us have mistakes, so go on and um, participate. It doesn't matter if your answer is not correct. I'm sure you will do it better next. Respect. We must include everyone in our class and in our activities. Commitment. Each child is necessary in the group. To facilitate this aspect, teachers should give some roles to each one. And we have many others like learn to listen to others, care for the rest, empathy, friendship, companionship. But what we do not have is time, girls. <laughs> it's true, Clara. Well said. <laughs> yes. Now we are going to see different techniques. That is the most entertainment part of this topic, I think. And also be attentive, listeners, because after we, we will ask you some questions. But don't worry, they will be easy. First of all, it is necessary to say that these techniques were divided according to their objectives by Núñez and Los Certaris. They are two psychologists that are specialized in social psychology of education. We have satisfaction techniques which get to know the group and improve human relationships and then we have church techniques which are according to the organization, the decision-making process and the content. content. Did you get it, girls? Yes, it's simple, I think. So now go on with the different techniques. The first one is called I am. It's perfect for the first day of class to know each other. In this case, each student has a piece of paper with the sentence I am, <clears throat> which they, they must complete to tell the others how they are. In a small groups, they change papers and now they, they classmates. The second technique is called My Name Is. Members are around the room until the teacher signal. Then they start to move and shake hands with their classmates. They have to say their name and personal characteristics. They need to answer several questions such as what vegetable would you be and what is your favorite animal? The third one is called storytelling. In a circle, one of the participants starts telling a story which he is making up. Another one follows it successively until all of them have participated. At the end, the teacher helps to tell the story again to see if all of them have understood it well. While they play, they develop their creativity. This technique is very useful because it also helps students to improve their listening skills. And the last one, according to the satisfaction techniques, is called Tell Me Your Problem. To carry this activity out, the interlocutor has to tell a problem and the other five has to give a response. Each of them must act dif differently. Not everyone can agree nor disagree. Teachers, in this case, has, no, has to make sure everyone is being honest and make this activity when students know each other. 
Now here we have another four techniques, but according to the church techniques, which my mate Clara has explained. Let's start. The first one is called rounded table. In this technique, we are going to treat a topic seen in class. Each participant in the table have to tell his or her point of view according to the topic. <coughs> Several questions and commitments <coughs> will be asked to the participant. So at the end, the mediator takes a final summary about the topic. It can be similar to a debate, no? Yes, Maria, it can be. The next one is called Phillips. For this technique, the teacher makes a question and divides the class into groups of six people, each one with a spokesperson. They have six minutes uh, to decide the answer to that question. All of them need to take part in the argument and, at the end, all of them need to agree. The answers are written uh, in the blackboard and, finally, they reach a conclusion on, among the whole class. The third and penultimate technique is called help or obstacle. The teacher has to write two columns on the blackboard. One says help and the other one puts obstacle. Help is a set of issues that make them be nearer to the objective. Obstacle prevent them from getting their objective. The ideas are written in the blackboard and they analyze each of them. This is really interesting and also can end with in a debate. Because if children not, do not agree, they can add some opinions and discuss about it. The last one is called role play. If your students like theater, it's the best option for you. The teacher sets out a problem. He or she selects actors who have to represent the problem during 10 or 15 minutes. Then both actors and spectators talk about the problem in order to reach a conclusion. Now, I think it should be great to ask, to ask our listeners if they have used one of those techniques as teacher of the, or if they have done them as students when they were little. Yes, it's, it is. So please, leave your answer on our Facebook profile, on our forums, or even call to our programs, if you want to. We will read your answers after I explain a section that can be controversial for students in some ways. <clears throat> also, to give you some time for thinking about the question. Which is this section that you are talking about, Pero? Yes, tell us. I don't have any idea of what you are saying. Is the difference between play and work? Ah, now I know what you meant. Yes, me too, Vero. And sometimes it is difficult to differentiate it, especially for children. And you know the difference? Mm, I think it was that work, despite it is enjoyable, has a goal that can be to learn something, doing homeworks, feel useful, or earn some money in case of adults. Yes, I agree with you, Clara. Yes, because you are right, Clara. Well done. Thanks, girls. But don't get used to it. <laughs> How nice you are, Maria. It was a joke, and you know it. <laughs> yes, can we continue, please? Yes, yes. Of course. So, as I was saying, an activity before being considered a play must, must have five characteristics, which are intrinsically motivated, has to be freely chosen, must be pleasurable and make students be actively engaged, and finally, it can be non-literal play which means that doesn't have to be real, they can't invent them. But according to this, do you think it's important for kids to play? Yes, many psychologists say, th say that. Playing is important for many reasons, like allowing them to communicate, helping children realize about, about their feelings. It also helps parents to understand them better. I consider that the best way to learn for kids is combining work and with play. Actually, there are a lot of rec records on internet which mix both things, and they are very useful. Remembering all those things, I would like to be a child again. <clears throat> Me too, but unfortunately, it's not possible. Okay, guys, now is your turn, listeners. Let's see what you have said. 
Laura López from Madrid says, I remember that when I was in primary, we used the technique called I am, the first day of class all years, until we were in sixth of prim primary. I love it. Beatriz Ramirez from Barcelona says, I'm working as a teacher and I have used the technique of role-playing and I have to say that it really works. Students are really engaged and love it, so uh, from here I recommend you to use it. Carlos Gutiérrez from Córdoba says, I have never done one of those techniques that you have explained, but I see them as useful, so I hope when you become teachers you put them into practice. Thanks for your participation. It's great to see your answers. Yes, thank you so much. So to conclude with this topic, I want to tell you listeners that as fitted professionals we want to emphasize on this topic in order to clarify that we need to know well those techniques. And also that if there were more acceptance, teachers would feel free to seek into new methods to improve their lessons' efficacy. Effi But now, girls, I have to tell you and to the audience that we have finished this penultimate topic of today's program. That is a pity because I really like it. But don't worry because there is one more topic and more questions for you listeners. So go on, Maria. Girls, as you have said, this is our last but not less program. I said last because we are going to talk about mediation, an essential process in all the organizations in order to be able to solve all the problem costs. Yes, I think the mediation in the school is essential. So let's start. Well, I forgot it. Before starting, I asked some people on the internet what they, th they thought mediation at the school is. They sent me the nurse. Mediation at the school? I have not this at my school. But I suppose it's something to mediate between people when there are problems. I don't know. Other says, Ah, yes, when I was in secondary education, one of my friends was a mediator. She had to be formed in some course, and voluntarily she helped people in problems. She didn't receive anything in exchange, but she felt very pleasant helping people. Other, other person says, Coincidentally, I am teacher of primary education, and I am mediator. I started when I saw that a lot of problems were originated at my school, so I decided to take a course of my own, of my own with other teachers. It was worthwhile. I feel very satisfactory when a child comes to me to help him or her to solve the problem. Well, I think the best way to start is giving a definition. As many times happen, there is not an exact definition and a lot of authors along history have talked about it. Girls, help me with the authors, please. Of course, Clara. I can highlight two thirds, who in 1981 said that the mediation is a process in which intervenes the two adverse parts, that is to say, the two persons or more, who differ in the opinion, and a third person who tries to facilitate the solution. Then we have Jean-Francois Fra Six. In 1995, he said that the mediation is a process of a third person who mediates between two or more people. This third person is the responsible of solving the problem and avoiding the future ones. My favorite ones are Bush and Folger, who wrote, who wrote in 1996 a book called The Promise of Mediation. They developed a new concept of mediation called transformational mediation. In this definition, they defended that the mediation is not a problem, if not an opportunity of personal growth. I think saying problems as an opportunity to learn and to improve is a good way of thinking, because as all of us now, we learn from mistakes. I totally agree with you, Maria. Now it's necessary to continue with Folger and Taylor. In 1997, they defend that in the process of med the mediation, the two adverse parts and the mediator try to isolate the problem in order to, in order to find solutions that beneficiate both parts. 
And it's important also the intervention of Jimenez, who in 1997 gave new contributions to this process because he applied the mediation not only to solve problems, if not to situations caused by detention, but communication. Uh, yes, Clara, and he had a new function to the mediation, apart, apart from solving conflicts, preventing them. And finally, girls, we have the idea of Perez, Ochaita and Espinosa. They said in 1999 that the mediation is a process to improve the human relations, establishing a mutual agreement and improving the interaction between people. But haven't you asked mm, yourself how this history of mediation at the school arise? Yes, I think it's a key question to our listeners. It started 30 years ago in the United States to avoid the violence in a school. Yes, Vero, in the 60s and in the 70s, passing pacifist and religious activists began to take into account the importance of teaching skills to avoid conflicts and resolve them in schools. At this time, teachers began to incorporate these skills in the curricula, but the, these incorporations were disorganized and they, may, and they have not many results. Yes, Clara, and it is for, uh, for this reason why in 1981, Educators for Social Responsibility organized these activities into a national association with the main concept of how students could learn to acquire the, the necessary skills to deal with conflicts. And while educators implied these methods in the curricula, in the neighborhoods, the, the Center of Justice put them throughout the United States. And these centers trained volunteers in order to solve conflicts without going to court. And finally, in 1984, 50 educators from the United States and community mediators met for the conflict resolution process at the school. After this, participants want to have an international support and they create an association called Academy for Mediators in Education. NAME. So, to sum up, the mediation is a process that, in small steps, has became, become sorry, an important process in schools, thanks to volunteers, associations like NAME, etc. Yes, at the beginning it was not recognized. So, as you are saying, girls, since it was recognized, several objectives were established. Yes, and first of all, in order to accomplish these objectives, the mediators, who can be students, parents, teachers, have to be taught in the techniques and principles of the mediation. The main objectives are the prevention of the violence and fight and teaching their abilities for the solution of problems. Pretty well, girls. And what are their, their effects? Well, it's easy. Uh, improving the climate of the school, several skills and abilities, promoting a culture, a culture of peace and reinforcing the dialogue. Mm, one of the things most important I consider is reinforcing the dialogue. And nowadays, more when you see the young people meeting together, but it won't, it won't. With the mobile, it's inconsiderable. I agree with you, Clara, but the thing changed. Well, once uh, the main objectives, we can go deeper and explain the types of mediation. The first one is the familiar mediation. It is one of the most common. In this case, the mediation intervenes in processes such as divorce, separations, to avoid the suffering of the family, including the children, and to avoid arriving to the judi judicial processes. The next one is the social intercultural mediation. Jimenez talked about it, defending that this type of mediation <laughs> is very important in situations of different multiculturalisms with the main objectives of mutual comprehension, fostering the communication, establishing interpersonal and social relations. But yes, do you know the basic principles of a mediation process? Let me explain some of them, of course, and need your help. Well, the mediation is based on four fundamental principles. 
The first one is understanding and appreciating the problems of the two adverse parts. The next one is making now the two parts that the mediator appreciates their problem and is right willing to help them. The third one is based on the creation of doubts in the parties about the validity of the assumed positions with. The next one is one of the most important and is the suggestion of different alternatives that facilitate the mutual agreement. But girls, but it's important to highlight that the mediator has not the authority to impose decisions. He or she helps the adverse parts developing their own solutions, listening, asking, negotiating. And now we have finished with this, we can start talking about the steps that the mediation at the school follows. The first step is called premeditation. It's very easy to understand. It consists in a dialogue between the adverse parts and both mediators in order to know the opinion from the adverse parts and if they are willing to change this opinion. The second step is only carry out if the conflict parts are willing to dialogue. So in this case, the mediators and the adverse parts meet together in order to explain how the process is going to take place and the role of the mediator. It is essential to highlight that the adverse parts have always to adopt a respect posture. Then the third step is very important because here the conflict parts give their opinion about the problem. Meanwhile, the mediators try to understand the situation, becoming translators of the situation, and trying to facilitate an approachment between the adverse parts. Uh, what happens if instead of existing one issue to deal it exists two? Well, the mediator should prepare different sessions to deal with the new problems. Well, in this step, the solutions are made. The mediators have to be fair with both parts, and the solutions have to be congruent with the necessities of both of them. Sometimes I think it can be a little bit difficult. And finally, the last step. Once the solutions are made, the mediators have to supervise the compliance of the students. And also something which is very important, congratulating them to be able to find mutual solutions. Perfect, girls. And now to continue, we are going to see the functions of school mediation more deeply. The first function of mediator is the management of conflicts in a school, and it should be done in two different ways. Directly assessing first the conflict and facilitating tools for the adverse parts, and the other is only the supervision. The second function is related to the improvement made by their mediation in process like the communication, the dialogue in the meetings of the cloister, in the elaboration of an educational project. The third function is the strengthening of the external links with the families, with the government, associations. In this case, the mediators act like a bridge between the school and other associations. The fourth one is the improvement of the participation of all the members in the educational community, teachers, students, parents. It's important to say that it's important that parents participate in the activity of the school and, that, and the mediation facilitates also this process of participation. Yes, Clara, and it's also important the communication between the parents, the parents and the mediators in order to discuss the scope and the way of their children's participation in school activities. The fifth function is fostering cohabitation and facilitate the incorporation of ethnic and cultural minorities. I consider this one of the most important functions. An example of this is, for example, that the function of the mediator regarding the teachers is giving them support to make face problems related to the migratory processes getting over stereotypes, helping them to deal with the diversity. And regarding, to, <coughs> and regarding to the foreign families, the mediator tries to help them, informing them about the scholar system, the process of matriculation, 
fostering their participation in associations like AMPA. But yes, like all the things, the mediation process has also limitations. Yes, Vero, but don't forget its advantages. No, Maria, let's start with the advantages and limitations. Firstly, we are going to talk about the advantages. Mediation is a method compatible with other types of penalized, preventing, repair and reducative measures. It means that the mediation must be compatible with all the possible conflicts and also it must be preventive to avoid the conflicts. Then it should be noted that the mediation is an attractive method, method to include a model of democratic management in schools. The third one is that the mediation promotes the capability of the educative community to regulate conflicts. Then we have that the mediation fosters reconciliation and rebarment. It means mediation repairs the damage, moral or material, and it tries to reconcile the broken relation. Other advantage, very important, is that the mediation provides empathy between the parts. Mediators listen every conflict part in order to feel to they feel understood and to make that the first conflict part understand the feeling of the other part, develop, developing in this way the empathy. Also, the mediation develops the reflection of consequences. This is important because if we are conscious of the consequences of our acts, in the future we are going to anticipate the consequences of our acts. And finally, the mediation facilitates alternative thinking. This alternative thinking is used when the parts look for con Sorry, when the parts look for compatible solutions according to the necessities of both, of both. But wait a second, girls. I have asked some people this morning about what they think the advantages of mediation are. Do you want to hear the response? Yes, yeah, sure. Please go on. Here they are. Hello, can you tell me any advantages of school mediation? Um, indeed, yes. According to my experience at the school, when I was a child, mediators were an important figure to solve problems, and I think that they were very useful. Hello, can I ask you a question? Yes, sir. Did you have mediators at the school? Do you think they, are, they were useful or necessary? In my school, there were not mediators, because sometimes it was really difficult to solve problems between more than two people, and nobody wanted to be in charge of it. Good morning. I'm doing a radio program. Can I ask you a question, please? Yes. What is it about? It is about the school mediation. Mm -hmm. Did you act as a, media as a mediator at the school or did, I, or did you not like it? I acted as a mediator when I was at the last uh, course of primary education, actually, and I like it. At first, uh, it was a, a little bit complicated, but then it was great to see your classmates reconciling with others. I think it should be promoted in all schools. As you can see, in, mod in most of the schools, they have that figure, and it's very useful. So from here to all those teachers, school directors, parents, everyone promote mediation at the school, please. Yes, it was great to listen to your opinion. So thank you so much, Maria, for bringing this, and thank you, people, for participating. Of course, Maria, you are right. This figure should be implemented on each school. Thank you, girls. I knew that you would like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know as well. Now we are going to talk about its limitation. The first is that mediation is only focused on solving the conflict, but is not focused on the causes that have originated the problem. Other is that many teachers don't use it because they are cap capable of solving the problems without a third, a third person, the mediator. The mediation is a private process, it means confidentially, so the students cannot learn about how to solve conflicts. 
And finally, the mediation requires training people and, and form them. And it is also necessary to foster the mediation process in order to new people become mediators. And after finishing, I want to know your opinion about the necessity of having or, or not a mediator at school. Well, I think it is very necessary having a mediator at school to solve the problems and to teach students how to solve these problems, especially in secondary education. Yes, I agree with you, but actually there are not many schools which have mediators because teachers are able to solve the problems by their own, I think. Yes, there aren't many schools, and this is due also that to be mediators is necessary have a formation which is not mandatory. So most of the teachers, parents, the students don't have it. It's for this reason that from here I want to call again all the people in order to foster the role of the mediators and in order to encourage, to encourage them to be mediators. I give you the name of, of a web page called mediacionyviolencia.com.ar in which you can learn several models to implement the mediation. Well, girls, and the moment arrived. We have finished all the programs of Psychological Mornings. It's a pity. Foremost, we would like to thank all of our listeners. We hope this program served you in your life. This was our intention. And I would like to highlight that all the music and the editing process are made by us. Thank you, listeners. We will meet you. Wait, girls. Before ending, I wanted to say that it has been a pleasure to work with you and I have been very comfortable here. I hope to concur with you in future projects. For me, it has been a pleasure too. Thank you so much. Guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.